3: On today's California Report magazine, we go back in time to revisit some little-known California history. From a woman who left incriminating evidence in the walls of her San Francisco mansion.
4: There's a part of the wall, the, you
0: know, the baseboard opens up. So she had a little hiding spot there.
3: To the way car clubs gave Japanese-American teens in LA a sense of belonging after internment. And a new map of long-lost Oakland, capturing what it looked like more than a century ago before grizzly bears vanished from the hills. Um, this is the
4: flip side, like all the wonderful things you see in Oakland right now, it all came at a price.
3: Plus the story of a San Diego firefighter struggling to cope after witnessing one too many tragedies. I'm Sasha Koka, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Okay, so we know California is always changing, morphing, expanding. There are so many newcomers to the state, though, that sometimes we can forget its history. So on today's show, we're going to bring you some little-known tales of the past from different parts of the state. We're going to start in Oakland.
5: Oakland's got the tribute.
3: That's the Good Time Washboard Band's classic tribute to Oakland. Imagine standing on the shores of the city's Lake Merritt. But instead of seeing the downtown skyline, you see Native American shell mounds, a roller coaster, and grizzly bears. As Bianca Taylor tells us, that's the idea behind a new project called Long Lost Oakland. It's a map of the buildings, plants, and animals that used to be there. Liam O'Donoghue
2: told me to meet him right here near this playground in Lake Merritt.
4: Lake Merritt was actually the first national wildlife refuge in America.
2: He spent the last year buried in historical archives, researching centuries of Oakland's past to recreate what the city once was. The result? A beautiful hand-illustrated map called Long Lost Oakland. The poster-sized map is colorful, and the drawings are bold like you'd see in a comic book but don't expect this map to give you any directions. So you made a map about things that don't actually exist. Yeah. Why, and why Oakland?
4: I think that this map actually is useful for navigating, but it's more about navigating through time as opposed to um, you know, navigating through the geography of a city.
2: Liam says his inspiration for making this map came from the city itself.
4: I live kind of right in the middle of Oakland. I live on Telegraph Avenue. Um, my, my desk window looks right out at the uh, city. Over the many years that I've lived there, I've watched buildings get torn down, I've watched new buildings go up. So part of this project is about understanding the disorientation of living in a city where so much is changing so fast.
2: But Liam says this time of rapid change is not that unusual for Oakland. He tells me that the Transcontinental Railroad, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, and the Great Depression are all examples of changes that Oakland faced in a matter of decades.
4: Understanding how Oakland dealt with these times of rapid change, I think, is helpful for navigating the changes that we're going through now. And it's not about saying that, you know, all the changes happening now are good or okay, but it's like, how did they deal with it then? What can we learn from the mistakes?
2: And there are some big mistakes to learn from like the treatment of the native Ohlone people.
4: When the East Bay was colonized, um, I don't think genocide is too strong of a word to use to describe what happened to the Ohlone civilization. It destroyed a lot of the habitat. There were invasive species. Um, This is the flip side, like all the wonderful things you see in Oakland right now, it all came at a price.
2: Liam set up a Kickstarter to support long-lost Oakland, but he's giving the map away to teachers for free in hopes that it inspires students of all ages to do their own research. And so far, it's working.
4: And I got the coolest email yesterday from a, I think it's a fourth grade teacher in Fruitvale who said that she's gonna do a long lost Fruitvale map based on kind of the stories that, that her students collect from their friends and relatives.
2: This is exactly what Liam set out to do with Long Lost Oakland. Create something beautiful that gets people to look twice at the streets they walk down every day. In a time when change seems like the only constant, a map that shows us where we've been might just be the thing we need to tell us where to go. For the California Report, I'm Bianca Taylor in Oakland.
3: Maps are one way to understand history, but so is collecting the stories of people who've lived through seismic cultural shifts, like the way California youth culture changed after World War II. Think American Graffiti, the drive-in, and the Beach Boys singing about car clubs. How about Japanese American or Nikkei car clubs? Teenagers with ducktails and rolled up jeans, cool patches on their jackets, souping up their cars. Many of those teens had been kids in internment camps during World War II. Well, Cal State Long Beach sociology professor Oliver Wang is trying to capture some of the memories of Japanese-American seniors who used to be part of those car clubs. He's a writer, scholar, and DJ who's written books about the Bay Area's Filipino-American DJ scene, Asian-American sports, and he's also a music reviewer and commentator for NPR. Hey there, Oliver. Hi. Hi. So this project started with your father-in-law, a guy named Don Mizoda, sharing his memories about car clubs when he was a teen, right?
6: Yes, I had always heard about car clubs in specifically the Japanese American community. And really this project partly arose out of my general interest in the history of Asian Americans uh, in car culture, which is a very, very long history. It spans many different communities. But my wife had mentioned to me, you know my dad was in a car club when he was in high school. And I thought, oh, really? Let me talk to him about it. And that's really what got the ball rolling on this.
3: So you called him up on the phone and this oral history project was started. Of course, you recorded these guys on speakerphone. You weren't planning to play them for broadcast. But let's just listen to a little clip from your conversation with your father-in-law.
6: What was your car club called?
4: Kameh. K-A-M-E. Which means? Turtle. (laughs) Uh, We didn't have fast cars.
3: So there were dozens of these Nikkei car clubs in Southern California in the 50s and 60s. And basically, these guys would soup up their cars. Sometimes they'd take off the hood decal. They'd put these plaques on their cars, wear the jackets. Um, but I love that, like in the case of your father-in-law, he didn't have a fancy Corvette or an Impala with fins on it. He was basically souping up his family's farm pickup.
6: Yes. And a lot of these kids came from working class families. Uh, my father-in-law came from a farming family and so the car that he had access to was the family pickup and he was able to do a little bit of customization on it in terms of taking off a lot of the Ornamentation, what was known as hooding and decking to create this very clean, customized look, which was very simple, but it set it apart from your standard stock pickup truck, for example.
3: You also interviewed a guy named Howard Igasaki. He was born mm-hmm. in LA. He was mm-hmm. a young child in an internment camp in Colorado. And uh, they lived in Gardena because it was a place without a restrictive covenant. Asian Americans right. could live there.
6: Howard was a member of a car club out of Gardena High School called the Apostles. And partly it's because these were, everyone in the group had initially met in a local Baptist church down there. So they were a little bit unusual because you think of primarily Japanese Americans, especially in that part of Los Angeles, as being more um, Buddhist. But this was uh, a group of uh, Japanese American Christians and they had really one of the the best logos I had seen. So it had
0: a engine with Mm -hmm. a halo over the top. (laughs) (laughs)
3: You know, my father-in-law is the same age as as your father-in-law. He was also interned in Jerome, Arkansas. And I think the sense for many of these folks when they were coming back to California was that there was this pressure to prove they were American, to prove that they were as patriotic as possible. You know, our family's grocery store in the Central Valley always had an American flag up, for example, after the Mm -hmm. war. What does car culture have to do with finding that sense of belonging after basically being told you're not American?
6: to have a car was engaging in a very deeply American form of culture because cars symbolized American freedom, they symbolized the the ability to to move and, and go wherever you wanted. And to form these clubs, these different social clubs, whether it was oriented around cars or not, was a really important way in which Japanese American youth Um, Whether they grew up in the camps or not, it was a key way in which they were able to reform community um, coming back from the camps and trying to resettle. So I think the car clubs do very much tap into this larger backdrop of what it means to be an American and trying to reconcile the experiences during the war um, with trying to rebuild their lives coming out from it.
3: One of the things that I found really fascinating reading through your interviews is that some of these car clubs were actually multiracial Japanese and African-American or Japanese with a Latino member.
6: Absolutely. And I think partly this is because the high schools that they were attending were um, for the most part multiracial. And so these were people who were depending on the part of town they were growing up in, um, they might be going to school with white, African-American, Latino youth. And the car clubs from What I can find were very almost never racially exclusive. They basically accepted whoever was interested in forming these because these were largely built from peer groups.
3: So, Oliver, you're looking for Japanese Americans who were teenagers in the 50s and 60s, and you're going to collect these stories. What do you plan to do with them?
6: I just think it's important to document this. People my age, a lot of them. When I mentioned the project, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, my father or my uncle or other people I knew were in these car clubs. So it was certainly a phenomenon that people were aware of, but there really has been next to no kind of documentation, whether in the worlds of journalism or academia. It's challenging just because um, trying to find people who are still around, who have um, a decent recollection of something that happened 50, 60 years ago, um, and are willing to talk about it. And Uh, For this generation of Japanese-American men, being able to get some of those details out of them can be a bit challenging at times. Um, I think it's an important story, uh, and hopefully it's one that we can get some kind of documentation around.
3: Oliver, thank you so much for talking with us about your project.
6: Thank you so much. This was a pleasure.
3: Oliver Wang is a professor of sociology at Cal State Long Beach, and he's working on a new oral history project about Nikkei car clubs in California. If you've got an idea for somebody he should interview, send us a note at calreport at kqed.org, and we'll pass it along. Now we're going to take a peek at some California history that involves police corruption, Hollywood starlets, a former California governor, and a highly publicized case that went to the Supreme Court. And a warning to those of you listening with kids, it's also about a controversial abortion clinic. KQED's Chloe Veltman explores the life of Inez Burns, the audacious woman at the center of it all.
7: This is the sound of a pair of Victorian-era forceps. The slender metal instrument I'm holding in my hands once belonged to Inez Burns. In the first half of the 20th century, Burns was one of California's most sought-after abortionists. She is said to have terminated around 50,000 pregnancies in San Francisco during her long career, using this and other tools at a time when doing so could land you in prison. The forceps are among the relics and secret spots, unearthed by the people who lived in her home in the years since she died.
0: There's a part of the wall, the, you know, the baseboard opens up. So she had a little hiding spot there. Um, but we haven't found any money.
7: That's Jeff Surf. He and his wife bought Inez Burns' jewel box mansion in San Francisco's Mission District in 1999. Surf knows a little about the home's most infamous inhabitant, that she threw wild parties and made a vast fortune performing up to 20 abortions a day, that her patients included everyone from housewives to celebrities like Olympic skater and film star Sonia Henney. But Cerf doesn't know Inez Burns like Stephen Bloom does.
0: I've been in love with Inez for 20 years.
7: Bloom is a journalism professor at the University of Iowa, and the author of a painstakingly researched new book about the abortionist. Burns was born to a poor German immigrant family in 1886 in San Francisco's then grim South of Market neighborhood. Bloom says her father was an alcoholic and her mother a taskmaster. Her
0: mother didn't believe in in education. She believed that girls and boys needed to work.
7: So at 17, with good looks but otherwise no real prospects, Inez Burns landed her first job as a manicurist at the barbershop in San Francisco's luxurious Palace Hotel. At the turn of the last century, wealthy men liked getting their nails done by pretty young women, like the auburn-haired Inez Burns.
0: She buffed and polished the nails of a lot of important people.
7: One such high roller was Dr Eugene West. Bloom says West was three times the young manicurist's age and a notorious ladies' man. He was also a notorious abortionist. The two started dating and eventually West taught Burns his trade.
0: And uh, this is how Ines got her beginning as an abortionist.
7: Cities like San Francisco were flush with practitioners of varying degrees of skill and legitimacy. They plied their trade under the table while cops and lawmakers took kickbacks and turned a blind eye. It was a dangerous business, leaving many women injured and sometimes dead. But Burns was meticulous and scrupulously hygienic. Before long, word got around. In 1927, she set up her own clinic in San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury neighborhood. Author Stephen Bloom and I visit the apartment building that used to house Burns's clinic. Bloom tells me Burns had no shortage of customers willing to pay her hundreds of dollars in cash to get them out of trouble.
0: It wasn't unusual for Inez to arrive here and find five or six women in a line, waiting for her to arrive in the morning.
7: The building is a little run down, with narrow corridors and few distinguishing features. Bloom says the place looked very different in Burns's day.
0: There were Chippendale chairs, there were Persian carpets.
7: Bloom says Burns was in it for the money and rarely provided discounts. The clinic was one of many properties she owned all over California, thanks to the millions she made. That fortune bought her friends in high places, including politicians and lawmakers. But she couldn't buy off ambitious district attorney Pat Brown, current California Governor Jerry Brown's dad.
5: I did enforce the law, but I tried to enforce it rather selectively in the sense that I didn't call the press in and say I'm going out in a crusade against or against abortionists or against uh, gamblers.
1: I just quietly waited for an incident.
7: That incident happened in 1945. Brown had attempted a couple of unsuccessful raids on Burns' clinic. She'd been tipped off and gotten away. But the third time, author Stephen Bloom says as we walk down the street, an undercover cop posing as a patient exposed Burns and she was arrested.
0: Police confiscated. Oxygen tanks, instruments, actual beds that were all hauled over to the courthouse and were used as exhibits during the trial.
7: Photo ID, come on in. Thank you. As Bloom and I stand in San Francisco's beautiful Beaux Arts Federal Courthouse, one of two places the abortionist was tried, the author tells me convicting Inez Burns wasn't easy.
0: The grand jury met twice and they ...found nothing wrong with what she was doing... ...or at least there wasn't enough evidence to indict her.
7: But DA Pat Brown was persistent. Inez Burns' luck finally ran out on September 26, 1946... ...when she was convicted for performing illegal abortions. At 61, Burns served the first of her two state sentences. There were federal convictions too for tax evasion. She was in and out of prison several times in her old age... An appeal went all the way to the Supreme Court, but the justices declined to review the conviction.
0: There are a lot of people out there who may say that Inez ended 50,000 lives. She also saved a lot of lives.
7: Bloom says Burns ended up paying the US government $800,000 in back taxes. That's roughly equivalent to $8 million in today's money. Burns was left penniless. Meanwhile, Brown's quest against corruption and vice paid off. He was elected California attorney general and then governor in
1: 1959. No, doctor, I just can't have this baby. Are you
7: sure that you want an abortion?
1: Bet I am. You have no idea what would happen to me if I have a baby
7: now. That's an anti-abortion PSA dating from the 1970s, when laws around the issue were radically shifting. The Supreme Court legalised a woman's right to an abortion in 1973. But Burns wasn't happy about it. Not long before she passed away in a nursing home at the age of 89, she said to a newspaper reporter, scores of women will die. It will be quite a while before physicians who have not been trained for this type of surgery will be able to do it well and safely. For The California Report, I'm Chloe Veltman.
3: Our next story takes us right up to the present. It's been a rough year for California with deadly wildfires, floods, tragic shootings. When the news gets too intense, you might just turn it off, take a break. But the first responders who handle these disasters can never turn it off. Firefighters, cops, paramedics, even ER nurses— They often suffer silently from seeing so much violence and pain. Heidi DeMarco, who's a reporter with Kaiser Health News, brings us this story of one firefighter in San Diego who,
8: at 37, found his life tumbling out of control. It's 7.30 in the morning, and firefighter Jeremy Forte has just wrapped up a 48-hour shift. He's part of a seven-man crew in Imperial Beach, California.
5: We good? Yep. Nowhere else? Nope. All right
8: but when jeremy leaves he drives right past the local bar this time last year that would have been the first stop he'd make and he wouldn't have been alone
5: there's uh nurses from the hospital there getting off work at the same time we'd be drinking with nurses and partying having a good old time and you know we didn't think anything was wrong with that because we got off work that's what people do right they get off work and they have some drinks
8: jeremy is tall and lanky with a thin mustache He's been a firefighter for 19 years. It's grueling, both physically and mentally. Drinking was how he coped.
5: So, you know, our motto was work hard, party hard. We would put in 16-hour days, and then we'd go drink the rest of the night, and then probably get two hours of sleep, wake up, you know, half drunk, (laughs) and uh, go back out on the fire line and fight these fires.
8: Jeremy started drinking more and dabbling in cocaine. And then he failed a random drug test. Usually that's a firing offense. Suddenly it was all in the line for Jeremy, his job, his friendships, his marriage. He had hit rock bottom.
5: They really could have uh, ended my whole life by turning their backs on me and firing me. And then at that point I would lose my wife as well and probably be living with my parents.
8: Jeremy grew up in West Covina. Two L.A. firefighters lived on his block. He could see they had plenty of time to spend with their families, but also a really exciting job.
5: Been bringing home all their fire gear and pictures of what they did and seeing my next door neighbors on the news helping people and doing that sort of thing really intrigued me.
8: But not everyone believed he could do it. Jeremy was born with a birth defect. He's missing some fingers and others aren't fully formed. His whole career, he's had to prove that he can do everything a firefighter has to do. Drive rigs, grip hoses, rescue people. And he can. Being a firefighter is his life. Losing all of that would be devastating. Jeremy agreed to every condition of probation and even hired a lawyer.
5: By the grace of God, I still have my job. I still have uh, people backing me.
8: During his recovery, Jeremy was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. He wasn't surprised to hear it, and he's probably not alone. Most first responders experience mental health issues, but most of them don't seek help.
5: You don't want to be seen as weak, so instead you guys, you know, we go have some drinks and joke about it, or, you know, talk about the situation still, but it's over alcohol, it's over, you know, whatever
8: else. After hitting rock bottom, Jeremy moved his family to a wood cabin in Lake Arrowhead. It's quiet there, and he can decompress when he isn't at work.
5: Station 14, only speaking, how may help you?
8: Jeremy is now sober and back in the firehouse full time.
5: The current fire crew that I work with now, we're all very open together, we're very tight-knit, and we talk about the stuff we see, and we're almost like our own counselors.
8: This morning, they're cooking breakfast. Three men at the table while others slice mushrooms yeah, yeah. or make hash okay. browns and eggs. Mm-hmm. I out. It ends up being a slow day, no calls, so they spend it checking gear and running drills.
4: You have a yank, right? Yep.
8: Yeah. Before turning in for the night, they gather again at the kitchen table. Yeah. Things get serious when the talk turns to suicide among firefighters.
5: Well, our, our department itself, we've dealt with a, a few of them. Two in the past,
4: probably. Was. Since we've been yeah. employed. And there was two at my last apartment. Really? Yeah.
5: Yeah.
1: The captain,
8: Richard Hernandez, says mental health information wasn't part of their training.
1: There really hasn't been uh, any direction on how to work with that if somebody is having an issue.
8: He says the firefighters can get three visits with a counselor per year, but that's not enough. Firefighter Lindsey Nolan says he'd love more training.
6: If I knew how to recognize PTSD, I'd be a lot more comfortable with approaching them and talking to them about what may or may not be going on in their life.
8: This is a drive Jeremy has been making a lot lately, to a drug screening center in National City. He also had to enroll in a recovery program, get counseling, and submit to a full year of random and frequent drug tests. But today is his last visit. His probation is ending.
5: I feel great. I mean, not to... Not that I'm going to go and celebrate, if you know what I mean.
8: By the time we arrive, Jeremy's downed two large coffees. But despite the caffeine, it takes him a while before he can provide a sample and walk out of those doors for the last time.
5: It was a humbling process. Yeah, ultimately wanted to get back on track for my family, for my job, uh, for myself. I mean, obviously, the biggest reason is my kids. I wasn't going to be allow this to keep me down and be some deadbeat dad that didn't seek help.
8: First responders have higher rates of PTSD and addiction, and they attempt suicide at 10 times the rate of other Americans. Jeremy says the culture of silence has to end. So does the idea that emergency work is about being tough at all costs.
5: It's not always that easy to make the correct decisions of seeking help. You guys shouldn't feel that way. It's the manly thing to do is to seek help.
8: First responders in California are already stretched so thin. Jeremy says they need to take care of themselves, too, if they're going to keep taking care of the rest of us. For The California Report, I'm Heidi DeMarco in San Diego.
3: And that's the California Report Magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Suzy Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller. And we had additional engineering from Katie McMurrin. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. David Marks is our web producer. And Nadine Sabai is our intern. Our team also includes Carrie Feibel, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. This is the California
1: Report Magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And Block Construction, a builder committed to enhancing communities in the Bay Area and Central Coast. B L A C H dot com. Block construction. Together building greatness. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. Hey, QED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of The Bay and beyond with reliable, human centered journalism.